cool. Anyway, um, before we get started this morning, oh good, my little thing's on. Uh, I want to look at some images of Jesus, uh, which people have painted over the years to sort of consider as, you know, and I want us to consider as we look at them, you know, which ones represent a truer image of the real Christ. So let's, let's start kind of funneling through these. If you could go to the first one. There we go. We have the uh, Byzantine Jesus. He's sort of like, I don't know, he's kind of drawn and gaunt and kind of angry and whatnot. Uh, if we go to the next one, I think we have another Byzantine Jesus. He's sort of like the suffering Jesus. He's still all gold, though. Like, he's got a gold body and everything. Um, go ahead. And then we have the Jesus that's sort of like far up in the top of the church. You know, he's like, you know, you're kind of squinting to see what he really looks like. He's he, that kind of, I think they probably did that. Like, he was high up and lofty and holy and, you know, unreachable, that kind of thing. If we continue... And we have, this is kind of like a Buddha Jesus. I don't know what this is, you know, but he's, he's got flames coming out of his halo. And uh, he, if you can see his face, I don't know how clear that is on the image, but he's kind of angry. You know, he's like, ah, you know, go ahead. Uh, we have Edward Manet's Jesus. Uh, he's sort of like this pale, he like he's never been to the beach, you know, kind of Jesus. He's whiter than everybody else, you know, that kind of stuff. That's pretty good paintings. Then we have this image that we saw last week, which was a really nice image. I like this image of Jesus, you know, with the, the adulterous woman. He's sort of uh, calm and present and gets down on her level and that kind of thing. I, I like that image. Go ahead. We have the cheesy Jesus, sort of like the heroin addict Jesus. You know, he's taking the hit for this guy, I guess. I don't know what that means. Um, you got everything. You got the skull and the gun. And then we have another guy. We have a really cheesy Jesus. He's got this, the father t- tattooed on his arm. And then we go to the next one in the like mega cheesy Jesus. You'll see like on the, the pole it says Savior. And then on the, the gloves it says Mercy. And I would imagine the other one says Grace. Like he's going to hit you with Mercy and Grace. <laughs> I, I don't know. I, I don't, I'm not sure I want my Jesus to look like that. But it's kind of just strange. But go ahead. And then we have the gun-toting. I think this is the NRA Jesus. I don't know. This is the, scare, the scariest Jesus I think we've seen. But I, it's like he's all like grayed out and gross and, you know, he's like smoking a cigarette, you know. I, I don't know. What's, what's the truer image of Jesus, right? Um, <laughs> we've been talking about encountering the Lord in this sermon series. We've been talking about encountering the Lord in the inner sanctum sort of in that moment of our quiet times where we come to Jesus, we come close to him, you know, and we start to contemplate him, we start to think on him, using our imaginations in what we would call today our imaginations, wrapping our imaginations around the truth of Scripture and, and encountering the real Jesus. And so we've talked about engaging in this imaginative prayer and uh, this cataphatic spirituality, which St. Saint, uh, Saint Ignatius of Loyola referred to it as, you know, and um, all doing all that in order that we are transformed, that we are changed into the likeness of Christ, that Jesus becomes a concrete reality in us and for us, right? And, and for our communities and things like that. And as it says in 2 Corinthians 3.18, this has been our sort of a hub verse, and we all who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory are being transformed into His image with ever-increasing glory, which comes from the Lord, who is the Spirit. You know, 
when you, when you speak, you get dry mouth. Drinking coffee is like, it's like being on a raft in the ocean and drinking salt water. It just makes you, like it makes your mouth more dry. I don't know why, I, I don't know. Anyway, total side note. But uh, as we look at that verse, uh, this is also that we can find freedom and we can find the life that Christ intended for us, as we see in verses 16 and 17 of the same chapter, it says, but whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away, right? Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Now, I do believe that, that I just want to clarify that some, some people can get confused by that, because sometimes the, the Scriptures are not that clear, even to us that are unveiled, who, who have the Holy Spirit in our lives. You know, sometimes it does take some digging and some thought and some research. I don't think that this means that everything's going to make sense all, like, wow, oh my God. But it does mean that we can engage and, and grow in our knowledge of the Scriptures. I think, I think uh, outside, my, my experience has been when I was on the other side of salvation, when I didn't know Jesus, before I'd given my life to Him, I didn't really think about these. I didn't care about, about the Scriptures. I didn't really understand them totally. But something came alive with me when I, when I became a believer. So um, our minds and our hearts, which we've said are one and the same, are free now to experience Jesus and be changed into his likeness, finding freedom from sin, from past sin or current sin, finding freedom from bondage, past bondage and current bondage, so that we can engage more freely in the kingdom of God, we can engage more freely in life and all that kind of stuff. And we said that neuroscience now confirms that we replicate our experiences with all the five senses, that we think with our brains, we imagine and we feel with our brains, we they, they are the seat of our heart and our emotions, but they are also the seat of our reason and our, uh, our, our logic and things like that. And, and we said last week, when, when I think of my wife, an image comes to my mind in full orb of who she is, what she looks like, how she makes me feel, how she smells, the taste of her lips. And it's not just a dead ticker tape of informational uh, data coming through my brain. It is an image, a live image. And so we want to apply all of that to what is the heart of God or the heart of the kingdom of God, which Jesus said is to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and then to love your neighbor as yourself, right? So it's all us, every ounce of us, everything that we are, Romans 12, 1 and 2 as well says this, and then we pour that out to others, right? So what does all that mean to apply this uh, imaginative, cataphatic spirituality to God and to ourselves and to others. And this message is entitled, Holding Up Your Body, because our relationship to God is to be centered on this real, incarnated Jesus in life. In, in Jesus, we encounter the living, true, exact, concrete representation of God. That's what we encounter in him. So let's go back. Let's start in the very beginning, or almost the very beginning. In Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through 5, it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from the tree, any tree in the garden? Right, that, right there, there's always, already a lie, right? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the, from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. So she's correcting his lie already. Good job, Eve, right? Uh, if only she could have kept on that, 
line, right? Um, you will not certainly die, the, t- the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be open and you, you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So I want us to notice right from the very beginning that the enemy starts with a lie about who God is or what God is or what God has said. So Satan implants a lie in Eve's heart-mind, we might call it, right? Making it look like God was threatened by this tree. That God was afraid of Adam and Eve knowing what he already knew, right? Like he's insecure, right? And that is a lie. That is a lie. But I think we will see that that tree is there to say, don't go there for your own good, right? Don't go there for your own good. And once that lie was implanted, it's followed with a temptation, and suddenly this tree is something that is desirable, and that's followed up with a sin. In other words, disobedience, breaking uh, rank with God, or better said, putting ourselves in the place of God over our own lives. We were supposed to live as... Uh, in, in connection with him, but it's, we, we break away and say, I know better than you, right? And that's the root of our sinful nature. It really is. And notice this, it, it, it all hinges on our image of God. It all hinges, it hinges on our image of God. How God is represented to me in my heart and my mind, right? What I think of, of him, who he is and what he is and all that kind of stuff. And Satan distorted the image of God for Adam and Eve, and no longer was he to them loving and good to be relied on in open, trusting relationship. Now, there was some sort of a little twist there where he was suddenly looking a little weak, a little scared, a little controlling, a little insecure, even deceitful, right? Oh, he's lied to you. He's told you something that's not really true, right? And the question for us is, Is the picture of God in your mind accurate or not? Is it accurate or not? And to to the degree that it is accurate or isn't accurate will reveal whether the kingdom of God is reigning in your heart or not, which is foundational for us in our spiritual formation, which we've been talking about. So if your mental picture of God is truthful and accurate, God will reign in your life bringing freedom and direction and and peace and so on and so forth. You know, we'll just be, continue to be growing in His glory. But if that image is askew, if it's misinformed, if it's twisted, or it's incomplete, then you won't be experiencing God's reign in your heart and your mind. You will feel spiritually dry. You'll sp- feel uh, distant. You'll feel uh, discordant, etc., and so on and so forth, right? God's original plan was that he wants to overflow in us. His life just coming out and overflowing out of us. And that's that he's the source of life, that he's, he's the source of our worth, our security, everything that we are. And as a result, we overflow life back to him and then also outwardly towards others in the world. And life then becomes worshipful in that kind of relationship with God and we experience freedom. And like our body needs food and water and all that kind of stuff, we need worth and we need life and we need significance and we need love and we need security from God. Those are natural good needs which mean only that we're human, created in the image of God. But in the design of creation, only God can fulfill these needs in us and He wants to fulfill those things in us to the point of overflowing out of us. 
right? And to the degree that this is happening, that is God's reign in me, right? This is the kingdom of God, right? The, the reign of God pressed down, shaken together, and overflowing out of me, right? Just full of Jesus, right? But the enemy lies. The enemy lies, and Satan diverts God's reign in my life by distorting my image of God, who God is to me. And it means, then, that we don't trust God to be our source of life. Trust is broken. That's, whenever a relationship breaks down, it's because trust is broken, Right? Rather, we, 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 so we don't trust him with, as the source of life. Rather, we replace him with idols. Something else that we put, in, 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 put our trust in uh, other than God. Something that, with which we uh, seek to fill ourselves with. And this is Christianity 101 in a, sentence, in, in a sense, right? We still crave significance. We still crave security. We still crave love and worth and life and all of those things, all of those good things. But we don't go to God for it. We don't go to God for it. We try to fill it or get it from other sources. And that's our, those things become our idols. Maybe it's other people. Maybe it's your spouse. Maybe it's achievement. Maybe it's sex. Maybe it's money. Maybe it's power. Maybe it's position. Or maybe it's what people think of you or your looks or whatever it is. Religion can even become that idol for us, how right we are in our theology, how good we are compared to someone else. You know, we're the older brother in the story of the prodigal son or in judgment of others, you know, all that kind of stuff. And instead of life becoming a celebration from the inside out, overflowing, right? It becomes a desperation from the outside in. We're just trying to, you know, pull things into us to make us feel better and to fulfill this, this void in us. That's worth saying twice. Instead of life becoming a celebration from the the inside out, it becomes a desperation from the outside in. And that's what Paul refers to as living in a life in the flesh or living by the sinful nature, right? And that's uh, and that life is inevitable if we aren't getting life from God. It's going to happen to you, right? If you're not going to Jesus for life, that desperation, that desperate life is going to happen to you. <clears throat> you know, you may hate the bondage that it brings. <clears throat> Sorry. You may, feel, you may feel the desperation of it all, but you won't be able to stop it if Jesus is not the source of life for you. You may trade your, your one idol in for another idol, and that might serve to make you feel better for a little while, but it will always come to its end, It'll, and you'll always come back to that feeling of desperation. Whether that, that feeling is overwhelming or it's just a quiet undercurrent in your life, whatever it is. Different personalities experience it differently, right? But this is extremely foundational to us in our spiritual formation. Everything hangs on our picture of who God is in this world. <clears throat> he's either the source of life, he's so- the source of worth, and the source of our security, or he isn't. And you'll be as healthy as your picture of God is accurate, or unhealthy as your picture of God is inaccurate. And everything hangs on who God is and how he meets our needs in this world. But the enemy has blinded us of this image. Remember 2 Corinthians 3. Uh, but their minds were made dull, for to this day the same veil remains when the Old Covenant is read. It has not been removed, because only in Christ is it taken away. Even to this day when Moses is read, a veil covers their hearts. 
But whenever anyone turns to the Lord, the veil is taken away. But in turning our gaze upon Jesus, it's basically saying that we can, it's saying we can once again reestablish a right and healthy image of who God is and who God is to the world. And one of the foundational reasons Jesus came into our history, he, incarn- he was incarnated into our history, was to reveal to us the truth of, of, about who God is, right? The exact representation of God. Jesus breaks through the darkness and unveils to us who God is because only when we can see Him and know Him can we be reconciled to true relationship with God the Father and be changed into the image of who God is and to begin to find peace in this world. I was speaking to somebody recently who explained that they've been changing over this past year, that, that they're softening, that they're becoming less distrustful of other people, that they're becoming less harsh with other people, right? And they explained that this is a direct result of their having come to know Jesus and, and contemplated who, contemplating who he is in this whole past year, that they're just being changed. In other words, as we said last week, as, as we see God as love, we become more loving. As we see God as forgiving, we become more forgiving. John 14, 6, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. Jesus claimed to be the truth, right? I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. Very familiar verse, right? And that term for truth is translated from, from the word aletheia, I think it is, uh, if, if I'm saying it correctly, but which means not covered. So Jesus is the not covered God, right? According to John. And Jesus, he is the non, uh, not covered, he's the not covered truth. God, in Jesus, God is uncovered, God is unveiled, Jesus discloses to us, to all the world, who God really is. He is the way because he's the truth. He is the tr- he's the life because he's the truth. He's the one, he's not one of many paths to God. He is the only path to God. The only path to God. And that see I I get really upset when people say, "Well, Christianity's so exclusive." No, it's not. Just because Jesus says he's the only path to God, that's not exclusionary. That's invitational. Right? If everybody was out there misinter- mis- misrepresenting you who you are and you said, I got to go tell people who I really am so that they can really know me, that's invitational. That's not exclusionary, right? So if anybody says to you, well, it's so exclusionary, no, it's not. It's God come to the earth to say, this is me and I want to be in relationship to you. It's totally and absolutely invitational, totally. John eight thirty two. then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. You will know the unveiled truth. You will see God for who God is in Jesus. You will contemplate that, and that truth, that unveiled God, will set you free in life. When you see who God is, you're able to trust Him as the source of life. The more you get from Him, the more you're set free, and all the fear and all the desperation dissipates as you begin to get life from God. You become secure. 
You have worth. You're loved. You're set free from the idolatry of religion and of power and of people and of money and of looks and of drugs or whatever it is or what other people think of you. Whatever it is that is your idol, you begin to get set free from that. John 1.1, in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the Word was God. Jesus is the Logos, the Word, this this what the Greeks would say is this abstract truth out there. Jesus, it was so unheard of to the Greek mind that John would say that abstract truth has become embodied in this person of Jesus. He is the logos, the word, the exact expression of who God is made man. When God speaks, it looks like Jesus. Colossians 1.15, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's the image or literally the icon of God. We could translate that word, right? He's the representation of God. If God painted a self-portrait of his character, it would look like Jesus. John 1.18, no one has ever seen God but the one and only Son who is himself God and is in closest relationship with the Father has made him known. No one has seen God. God is spirit. God is invisible. Apart from Jesus, God is veiled. But in Jesus, the word is made flesh. God has become unveiled in human form. John 14, 9. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip? (laughs) Even after I've been among you such a long time, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Come on, Philip, get it. Don't go looking around for something else. Fix your eyes on me. Now, if, if one of the disciples who's walked with him just can't see it and get it, I mean, it makes you feel a little better, right? I mean, come on, Peter. Like, I've been with you for so long. I'm it. I am the real deal. I and the Father are one. I am God embodied in flesh right here. Matthew eleven twenty seven. he goes as far as to say this. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and and no one knows the Father except the Son. So Jesus didn't regard himself as just another wise teacher, just another guru, just another shaman out there, just another good speaker, just another truth-sayer, right? And neither should we. Because, Because no one would say this about themselves unless they were lying or they were crazy, or it was true. Lord, liar, or lunatic, right? That old argument. You'd say I was crazy if I stood up and said these things, right? It's arrogant unless it's true, or it's crazy unless it's true. No one except me knows God except me because he's, I'm God. That's what he's saying. You may see glimpses of God out, out there in this or that, in, in teaching or in actions of people or in nature, but the truth of God unadulterated, unambiguously, is revealed and unveiled in the person of Jesus Christ. And this is the difference between Christianity and all other religions out there. There is no other religion that's going to bring you to God other than Christianity, because that's what Christ said. And He is God. Hebrews 1, 1 through 1-3, In the past God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times and in various ways, but in these last days He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed over heir over all things, and through Him also He made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided pur- purification from sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. So God has revealed himself 
over history, over time, he's revealed himself in, in various times, in various ways, through people, through prophets, right? And that's all good, and it's all needed, and we can use all that, and we can, we can put some things together about, about who God is by, by looking at all that. But it, is all, it was always partial. It was always partial. But now God speaks to us by his Son, which is a complete and, and, and full resemblance of who God is. Nature and people, etc., and so on forth, forth are, are, they, they reflect at some level, but they are always twisted and mixed up. They're not the absolute repre- representational picture of God. None of it is. Hebrews says the Son alone is the radiance and the exact representation, the hypostasis, the, the essence of the Father's heart. That's what it is. He is the only place we find the essence of who God is totally and purely. The accurate self, you know, the accurate self-portrait of who God is, is found in Jesus. That's right. Amen, brother. (laughs) God restores his image and the pipeline to himself in Jesus. This relationship is restored to the Father through Christ and through Christ alone. And we can trust him at the core of our identity and what we do in life expresses what we have in Jesus, right? Rather than trying to desperately get what we don't have, we don't already have, and to fill that void and all that kind of stuff, becoming the emotional black hole for everybody around us, we overflow with life to God and to others. If something in your life is bringing you to this desperation, most likely you have an idol. Most likely you have an idol, right? But, you know, just listening to all these words, listening to all this scripture, right? All these words, this dead ink on page, this information won't get you there, right? Now, the information is important. This is the dichotomy, the weirdness of it. The information is really important. The story of God is, is uber important. You have to understand it to know God, right? You don't have to understand every little bit of it, but you have to know something. But just information doesn't lead to transformation, does it? Just information doesn't lead to transformation. Like we said a few weeks back, if just information led to transformation, then all the really smart people would be the closest to God. But they're not. They're not. We need to ask the Holy Spirit to make it real in us, real to us. And anybody can experience that. It's 2 Corinthians three seventeen through 18. From the last two weeks, we've, we've looked at these verses. We encounter we behold and we experience the glory of God in the face of Jesus. When we behold this picture of God in Jesus, then we are transformed. We are made into his likeness, right? It has to be embodied. It has to become concrete in me. It has to change me. And the place we do that is in the inner sanctum, in this, this very intimate time of contemplation with Jesus. When we wrap our imagination around this truth of Scripture, and we allow the Holy Spirit to form a true picture of who Jesus is to us and in us. Now, I'm a pretty excitable preacher. <laughs> I've never been, you know, I get wound up. I've never been blamed for not having passion or a lack of passion. And someone might look at me and think that I'm a showman at times, right? Is being excited just part of my shtick, right? You know, um, Am I faking it? 
Someone may think that I'm faking it because I think we always ascribe to others our own motivations, our, our own sort of situations, our, our own feelings we, do, we, we sort of ascribe to other people. We place them upon, what is that called, projecting and counselor speak, right? In other words, you may feel dry and unexcited about your faith as, you know, or, you know, or the word of God, you don't really get into it, doesn't do much for you. So you see somebody else excited about their, out there about it and, and you think they're faking it. Well, I'm not faking it. Likewise, I can't fathom someone really believing this stuff and not getting excited about it. I don't get that. All of our emotions are a representation of what's going on in our minds, the images and pictures in our brain, right? If we're feeling dry and uninterested or passionless about our faith, then maybe we still have a picture of God in us which is off or boring or unreal. And if so, we would not go to God as the source of life in that case, but we would rather run to other things uh, because God's boring. He's, he's uninterested. He's, he's powerless for you, right? You'd run to your idols. You'd run to your looks. You're, you're working out. You get more money because everybody needs more money, right? You'd, get, you'd work harder. You'd get more. You'd drink more. <laughs> you know, you'd smoke more dope, I guess. I don't know. You know, you'd, you know whatever it is. You'd get more religion. You'd get smarter in your religion. You'd get more smarter, you're smarter in your theology. Whatever it is, you'd go there first, wouldn't you? Many of us are able to spout off some information about God. We're, we're able to do that. He's omnipresent. He's omniscient. We don't really know, know what all that means. But, you know, he's loving. He's full of grace. You know, we can say it with that face. He's full of grace. Right? <laughs> right? But what you say you believe isn't the issue. What you say you believe isn't the issue. It's the image that you live out of. It's the image in your heart and your mind which is important. It's your worldview. Has Christ changed you at your core? A lot of people out there say they believe something, but their life doesn't reflect it, right? Remember, we don't think with just information. We think with images. One pastor told the story of a, of a spiritually dry woman that came to his office who finally was able to capture a good image of Jesus in her mind. And he asked her at first, he said, never mind all the information you know, all the theology you know and all that kind of stuff. What you think of Je- when you think of Jesus, what picture comes to your mind? What do you see? When you close your eyes and you think if Jesus was here, what do you see? And it was of her standing on one side of a large chasm. And Jesus was way over on the other side of the chasm. Very, very far away from her. And to add to it, he had his back turned towards her. He wasn't engaged with her. And the woman was very knowledgeable in, in, in the word, in theology, and all that stuff. But she didn't feel excited about her faith at all. She felt unloved, she felt uninterested, she felt lo- or uninteresting, she felt lonely, as if, as if she's a nobody. That's what she felt like, and rightly so, with that sort of image of Jesus, right? If you're living with that, you're going to feel that way. And to compensate in her life 
Her idol had become her looks because she was a pretty woman. And so to attract others' attention, she worked on her looks, right? And the pastor helped her to finally reform, uh, you know, reform her image of Christ to, become, to get a truer picture of Jesus in her head. And when we submit our imaginations to the Holy Spirit, we will be transformed. Romans 12, 1 and 2, right? It'll take time. The image of God will not feel true at first for, for a while because we're not used to it. We're used to the old ones. We're used to the false images that we've grown up with, we lived with, right? And for that, Im- that woman, Jesus turned around first. You know, as they were talking, Jesus turned around and he looked at her as the, sp- the pastor started to speak truth into her life about who God was to her. And the, then the gap started to close between the two as her image became more in line with the truth of who God is in the Scriptures who God is in Jesus Christ from the Scriptures. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Ephesians, right, I think. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. That's a nice verse. This happened to me when I was, uh, even before I made a profession of faith in Christ, I, a, a person, I don't even remember who it was, right? But a person led me in an, in an imaginative sort of exercise where they asked me if there was anybody in the world, I was going through a tough time, they said, is there anybody in the world out there that would help you, uh, you know, get through this? Who would it, who would it be? And I just sa- I said, Jesus, for, li- for lack of knowing anybody else. I was like, oh, Jesus? You know, okay. All right, we'll do that. And, and so they asked me to imagine myself someplace that I'd like to be. So I imagined myself sitting on a beautiful sunlit beach all by myself, nobody else around, uh, with my feet in the water and all that kind of stuff. Um, and then they, they led me in this imaginative prayer exercise where I saw Jesus walking down the beach towards me, uh, coming closer and closer and closer. And as he came closer, his features became more evident. He, became, he came into focus. And finally, he sat down next to me and he told me that he loved me. And he told me that he forgave me. And this person was leading me through this, right? Told me that he forgave me and that he enjoyed sitting on the beach with me and talking with me. God enjoyed being with me. And that was extremely powerful. I left that meeting in tears. And, you know, it's funny. We always look for healing. We talk about healing and physical healing. But how much emotional healing happens through that inner sanctum meeting with Christ? I was healed by a, for, of a lot of stuff that day, right? Being transformed by the renewing of your mind takes time. Old patterns are strong. What, what we call the sinful nature, the old man, or if you're a female, the old woman, Right? The old man or the old woman does not let go too easily of their control. Change doesn't always come overnight. Although there can be like light, like we can bump ahead pretty, pretty well sometimes. It doesn't always, it takes time, right? And the more time we spend with Jesus, the more life we get from Him. Other things just fall away. We don't have to tinker with ourselves. We don't have to work harder. We don't have to get, get more and more and more information. We've got a lot of information already. We are transformed just by contemplating His glory. And the way to freedom is to get our value and our worth from God and no place else. As Hebrews said, to fix our eyes on Jesus, the, of the author and the perfecter of our faith. Right? 
We're going to encounter the Lord today in, together in a, in a context of a scriptural story. Uh, I think it's, uh, if you want, would want to look it up, I think it's Matthew, it starts in Matthew 26, 36, if, if you'd like to look it up. But um, we're not going to necessarily read that, that story. But it's the story based on the, the Garden of Gethsemane. And this is a story where Jesus himself invites us into an intimate moment of his own humanity. He's, he's fully God and he's fully man, right? And he invites us into this intimate moment of experiencing his pain and his suffering in humanity. A story which reveals he can identify with our fear and with our suffering. But this story also shows us too that we often fall asleep on God. Right? Remember Peter fell asleep in the Garden of Gethsemane. Stay awake and pray for me as I go over here and I pray. Right? But Peter falls asleep a few times. Right? We're often not there when God needs us. You ever think that God needs you? He's, he's asked you. He's, he's invited you into this, this life of kingdom living. He's, he said, I'm working through you. And when we don't respond, He needs us. That doesn't make Him weak. That doesn't make Him weak. It means, it means he engages in relationship, right? It's reflective of the character of God to desire to be in relationship with us and to share life and to share his work with us, right? Terry Churchill, who wrote our poem from last week, is gonna, um, wrote this story as well in, in light of that, that story in the Scriptures, and she's going to be reading for us. And wh- what I want us to do is I'm going to open us up in prayer, and then we're going to listen to, to Terry uh, read. And during the time that she's reading, I just really want us to, to put ourselves you know, in Peter's shoes or in, even in Jesus' shoes and to just put ourselves into this, sit in the Garden of Gethsemane while this is going on, even if it's just you sitting there being an observer of what they're going through. But take your moment and imagine that you're there, that you're experiencing these things with them. So let me pray as we open it up. Holy Spirit, we, we invite you right now to come and lead us. I pray that you would take us by the hand right now and lead us down that road to the garden. That as we approach, we see the plants, we see the trees, we see the moonlight. We see Peter sitting by a tree. We see Jesus off to the side praying. Whatever it is that image conjures up in our mind. We see the moonlight coming through the branches of the trees. We feel the cool, crisp air. We smell the the earth and the verdant life around us. And we might hear sounds uh, far off of other people. We just pray that you would take us into this place right now and help us to experience and understand who you are. 